everybody. Welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we are going to be talking about Andy Warhol. Now, I'm sure some of you know about Andy Warhol. I think his artwork is fantastic. Um, He's known for kind of his pop art style. Like if you've seen the Campbell Soup Can or you've seen some of the pictures he's done of like Marilyn Monroe, he's done some of Elvis, and he also is known for taking Polaroid pictures of famous celebrities like he's done John Lennon, he's done Farrah Fawcett, he's done Mick Jagger, he's done like so many famous people. He's really fascinating to me as a person and as an artist and I think some of us know that he had a hand in some really famous album covers for uh, various bands and I wanted to kind of talk about just some of the artwork he's done and what he's contributed to the music scene because he played a big role in one of the bands that I'm going to be talking about here, um, their breakout album, The Velvet Underground. I'm sure everyone knows about the famous banana cover. That is Andy Warhol. Um, and he's done a couple of other ones, like really big ones as well, that maybe you didn't know he had a hand in producing. I was mostly inspired to talk about Andy Warhol because Netflix just released I think it's a six-part docu-series about his life, and I was fascinated to learn about his story because I honestly didn't know a lot about him. So I just kind of wanted to talk about him and give a bit of background into who Andy Warhol is, how he created um, the art style that he's known for, and then as well talk about some of the album covers he had a hand in producing. Um, So without further ado, let's start talking about the backstory of Andy Warhol. So Andy Warhol was actually born as Andrew Warhola, and his parents are Czechoslovakian immigrants. Um, They immigrated to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where Andy was born. He was born on August the 6th in 1928, and I didn't know that he was born in the 20s, to be honest. I mean, I didn't really think about that until I just started looking into it, like, wow, he was born in the 20s. Like, that's so fascinating to me. So Andy was always known as being kind of um, somewhat out of the closet, but also somewhat in the closet. Like he played around with the fact that he uh, was unabashedly who he was. And that was a big point of contention for that documentary because he always found himself being drawn to art and fashion. Pennsylvania wasn't really the best place for him to kind of grow as an artist And New York at the time was one of the big places where fashion and art was very eclectic and like-minded individuals like himself who were a bit different growing up in the 50s and 60s back in the day. New York was just like the place to go. So he ended up moving to New York in the 50s. And along the way, before he became his own kind of standalone artist. He mostly worked as a fashion illustrator for various magazines, like he would draw women's shoes, he would draw little um, caricatures in magazines and things like that. And then along the way, as he was building himself up in New York City, this is where he created his own studio. And he would call this studio the factory. It was here that he created a team of like-minded individuals, like assistants, that would help him on paintings and drawings. Not only that, but I kind of forgot that he also produced films, like little cult indie kind of films. Nothing that would be on like the big screen necessarily or 
that would like garner any awards or something. Um, but very um, avant-garde, that's the word, like avant-garde films. He would have this team of actors called the Warhol superstars that would always like star in his films, right? Um, so he was kind of experimenting doing films and then doing drawings, paintings. And again, like I think we all know most famously the Campbell soup cam painting that he did is what style he was known for. How he would do that is actually quite interesting because what he would do is he would find a picture and he would have it be blown up onto a silkscreen canvas. And then from there, he would trace the image and then he would do pops of color. Specifically, like for women example, he would paint their lips, he would paint like eyeshadow, he would paint their hair, things like that, just for pops of color to kind of contrast everything. And that's what he was known for. So that's just kind of the basic behind the scenes of how he would like create some of those images. So kind of how he started to go from doing that into taking mostly Polaroid portraits of celebrities was one day at the factory, one of his assistants, I believe her name was Valerie, she totally snapped one day and she attempted to kill Andy Warhol. She brought a gun into the factory and she shot him a couple of times and she then kind of left. And this would leave Andy severely disfigured for the rest of his life. Um, He survived miraculously. He survived like he almost died, um, but he miraculously survived and he had to wear a body corset to support himself, his midsection, because he was like shot all throughout his middle section. It was really it was really, really interesting to learn about how he pulled through. I mean, he nearly died. Seriously. So he couldn't really do a certain kind of painting or, or art style that he used to do before this accident before this assassination attempt because he was handicapped and so he couldn't really do all the stuff that he used to do. So he kind of changed course a little bit, which is then where he would go out to clubs and discos in New York City. He would mingle with all of the celebrities that would go to like Studio 54, the most popular New York club in the 70s at the time. So he would rub shoulders with all these people and he would bring some of them back home to his factory. He would take multiple Polaroid pictures of them. Sometimes he would spend like an hour or so just taking a million Polaroid pictures until he found the best one. And then what he would do there is a similar process to his paintings. He would blow up the picture. He would send it to a printer and they would blow up the picture and it would be put on a silkscreen canvas. He would trace over it and then he would do the similar pop art kind of stuff that he would do on his other works. So that's what he then became known for as well as the Polaroid pictures of celebrities that he would do and then the pop art stuff. That's just the basic rundown of who Andy Warhol is and how he created some of his art. So now we're going to take that into the music scene and the album covers that he had a hand in coming up with and or he had a hand in inspiring some album covers. I'll just say that. So the first one is John Lennon and his Imagine album cover. So people thought before that the picture of John on the Imagine cover with the cloud over his face, that that picture was taken by Andy Warhol. That's not the case. However, John and Andy Warhol were great friends. I mean, John was living in New York. 
of course, we know this in the 70s. And John and Andy were really good friends. And Yoko was also good friends with Andy Warhol. He would have taken multiple Polaroid pictures of John and Yoko. Some of those pictures are actually really cool. There was one where it was like a double exposure kind of Polaroid of John and Yoko blended together. It was really cool um, artistically and things like that. And for John Lennon's album for Imagine, the album cover, he actually invited Andy Warhol to his home in Tittenhurst Park to take pictures for the album cover. So even though Andy was actually assigned to do the album cover, the picture that we know to be on the Imagine album cover is not one that Andy took. He took a couple of pictures, but John didn't go with those. He actually ended up going with a picture that Yoko took of him. So the picture that we know of was actually taken by Yoko. So I thought that was interesting just from that. And so now one of the biggest album covers that he directly had a hand in producing, collaborating with a band directly and having a hand, a a very deep actually hands-on collaboration with is The Velvet Underground. And I'm not a massive fan of them, to be honest. I know this album and I listened to this album before and some of their other music, but I'm not really a fan of them. I'm not really a big Lou Reed fan either, to be quite honest with you. However, you can't deny the fact that this album cover is so iconic. Um, So I have a bit more information on this album in particular than the other ones, just because he had a direct hands-on with the producing of the album and the album cover itself. Of course, we all know that the cover for the Velvet Underground and Nico album is the banana. Early versions of the album actually was supposed to be set up where the owner of the album cover was invited to peel and see what was behind the banana. And when you peeled back the banana on the album cover, it was to show like the actual banana inside. But it was instead of a yellow colored banana, it was a flesh colored banana. So make of that what you will. Okay, we're going to keep it PG on this episode. Okay, a special machine was needed to manufacture those covers in particular, which is one of the reasons why the album was delayed upon its release, because they had to make sure that they got that like slowly peel and see what's behind the banana peel kind of gimmick to the album cover. So MGM paid for the costs that was to come from just that little peel and see whole kind of gimmick because they figured, well, Andy Warhol has a tie to this. And so it's going to get more sales on the album. So they thought the pros outweighed any of the cons to the cost there. So they were like, yeah, whatever, we'll do this. Okay. So just a little behind the scenes. The album was recorded with the first lineup of the Velvet Underground that starred Lou Reed, as we all know, John Cale, Sterling Morrison, and Maureen Tucker, as well as German singer Nico. She was featured on the album as well. And actually, Nico came on the album at the insistence of Andy Warhol, and he acted as their mentor, manager, and collaborator on this album in particular. Um, So he was insistent that Nico was to be on the album because um, she occasionally was to perform background vocals and lead vocals and things like that for the band anyway. But he wanted her to be on there because he thought that she added a certain uh, je ne sais quoi to the whole thing. So the album was to be recorded in mid-April in 1966 during a four-day stint at Scepter Studios, which was kind of like a rundown recording studio in Manhattan. And this totally was financed by Andy Warhol and, of course, by Columbia Records. However, Andy Warhol footed like a lot of the money for the recording of this album. 
So he played a really big hand at making sure this album got everything it needed to succeed. And so even though it's not exactly known like how much exactly went into the cost for recording the album and all the production costs needed for that, it's kind of estimated that he footed about, at the time in 1966 money, $1,500 to $3,000 at the time, which due to inflation, that about estimates currently into about $12,000 to $24,000 in today's money. So a lot of money was put into financing this album, and it was footed by him. And Andy is formally credited as the producer on the album, even though he is credited formally as the producer, like his name is on the album cover and things like that. He had little direct influence beyond kind of paying for the recording sessions and for insisting Nico was to be on it and for the album cover. I mean, he obviously had no experience in like producing an album and, and engineering an album. He just had a major hand in it. Um, I just wanted to read a little quote quickly from Sterling Morrison and how he described Andy Warhol as the producer. Just kind of like what they thought about Andy Warhol and his direct kind of hand in the pot to this whole thing. I thought it was interesting. So he just made it possible for us to be ourselves and go right ahead with it because he was Andy Warhol. In a sense, he really did produce it because he was this umbrella that absorbed all the attacks when we weren't large enough to be attacked. And as a consequence of him being the producer, we'd just walk in and set up and do what we always did and no one would stop it because Andy was the producer. Of course, he didn't know anything about record production, but he didn't have to. He just sat there and said, oh, that's fantastic. And the engineer would say, oh, yeah, right. It is fantastic, isn't it? If you are a massive Velvet Underground fan, you have to 100% give all the respect to Andy Warhol for that one right there. So another one that kind of falls into the immense over-influence, if that even is a word, Andy Warhol had a massive influence on the Rolling Stones. Like, it was well known that, like, Mick Jagger was good friends with Andy Warhol. And I'm sure maybe some of you didn't know that the Rolling Stones album cover, Sticky Fingers, was actually from Andy Warhol. Like, he set that up and he did that. So another extremely influential album cover. Like, I can't even begin to name on on the top of my head how many reproductions of Sticky Fingers has come out since its inception in the 60s. I mean... So many people have recreated the album cover in so many ways, and it's thanks to Andy Warhol. So again, in a similar way to kind of the 3D kind of gimmick to the Velvet Underground album, Sticky Fingers was intended to have a working zipper for the jeans. Like, you know, literally the album cover is just a picture of some guy's crotch, okay, <laughs> with, the, with the jeans, okay? So like the intended to have a working zipper on the jeans and perforations on the belt buckle so, like, you could actually, like, unbuckle the guy's belt and work the zipper, and underneath it would show he was wearing briefs. Okay, again, we're going to keep it PG, okay, for this audience here. I just thought that was really interesting that he had this, like, fascination for doing 3D album covers. I think I think genuinely more people should do that. It's a, it's a gimmick for sure, but I think it's fun. The album artwork was totally conceived by Andrew Warhol, and it was photographed by Billy Name, and the design was by Craig Braun. So Craig Braun and his team had other ideas for the whole physical thing of the zipper and the complete package of the album cover, such as wrapping the album in rolling paper 
However, this was a concept later used by Chichen Chong. Um, but Mick Jagger really, really, really wanted the working zipper on the album. Like he was so emphatic about that whole detail. He he wanted that on there. Like the execution of the album cover was then handled by Andy Warhol, who had sent Craig Braun the Polaroid pictures of the model in tight jeans, and then it was chosen like that this was gonna be the album cover. So a lot of people over the years kind of assumed that the male model on the cover was Mick Jagger. However, it's not Mick Jagger on the cover. In fact, the person on the cover, his name is Joe D'Alessandro, and he was one of the Warhol superstars that would star in Andy Warhol's films. And he comes along in the next album I'm going to talk about too. And actually, what's so cool about this Rolling Stone Sticky Fingers album as well is this was the first official usage of the Rolling Stones tongue and lips logo that it was ever done. Like before this album, Sticky Fingers, that that whole logo was never used. It was never done. It was never conceptualized until Sticky Fingers. It was originally designed by Josh Pash in 1970. However, Craig Braun had a massive influence on designing it as well and putting it on the album cover. You could theoretically as well, again, thank Andy Warhol for that because Craig Braun and Andy Warhol were very close. They worked together on this album cover. Craig Braun had a hand in putting that logo on the album cover. I mean, it's a massive, massive, massive album cover, like fully nonstop. I mean, I have the album on CD. I think it's a great album regardless. But again, just Andy Warhol's massive influence on on music culture is so fascinating. The last album that I have to kind of briefly talk about is the debut album for The Smiths. And if you can kind of remember if you happen to be a fan of The Smiths, the debut album cover for The Smiths album is the shirtless guy on the cover. Going back to the Rolling Stones, the actor Joe D'Alessandro, who was the male model for the jeans uh, picture for Sticky Fingers, he was also the one on the Smiths album cover. It was a still shot, like a screenshot that was taken from a film that Joe D'Alessandro was in from an Andy Warhol film called Flesh. And so that's the tie-in to Andy Warhol with the Smiths. And it makes sense because Morrissey is such a big fan of eclectic films and literature. Like he is a bookhead and he is a fan of all of that stuff. He he is he's actually a fan of um like Oscar Wilde and Andy Warhol's films that kind of played up or that kind of inferred a bit of a a queer undertone to it. He was always kind of really into that whole scene. And so that to me makes a lot of sense. It's just the whole thing about like the male form that Morrissey was really interested in, similarly to Andy Warhol. So two album covers as well that I thought I wanted to mention that he had a hand in making, but I didn't find any specific information on how it was created, was Diana Ross's album, Silk Electric. The picture, the portrait of her on the album cover was done by Andy Warhol. And then this one blew my mind. I had genuinely no idea this whole entire time that he had created this album cover, but it makes sense in hindsight looking at the album cover. So he had a hand in making Billy Squire's Emotions and Motion album cover. And the cover, if you can remember what it looks like, is a close-up picture of Billy Squire. And it has, again, that pop art color blocking effect on the album cover. It makes total sense that that was Andy Warhol because that is actually like his signature style. But I never put two and two together. I'm like, Billy Squire? 
Really? Andy Warhol had a hand in that? But yeah, it's true. So in a nutshell, that's basically it. I mean, he did a couple of other ones. If I remember correctly, he's done roughly 50 album covers. There is a compilation album cover of John Lennon, Men Love Avenue, which is hearkened back to John Lennon's um, childhood house that he lived in with his aunt Mimi on at Men Love Avenue um, that came out, I believe, in 1986, that album cover. Um, he had a hand in coming out with that and some other ones. Like Aretha Franklin, she had one and he did an album cover for that as well. Um, there was another Rolling Stones album cover he had a hand in. I believe it was a live album. You know, just really, really fascinating the person that Andy Warhol was. He was one in a million and I really don't think we'll have another one like him again. I mean, Banksy, I would kind of say is kind of somewhat like that. Like he's very different. He does his own thing. And I, I don't know. I think art and music come together in such a perfect way that I'm sure Andy Warhol never really perceived or could really fathom he would have a hand in creating two of the most iconic album covers of all time. Like the the, the Velvet Underground one with the banana and the Rolling Stone sticky fingers. I mean, come on. You know what I mean? You could spot those from a mile away and just know, oh, I know that. You could see the Andy Warhol banana picture and be like, oh yeah, I know what that is. So I just thought that was really interesting. Kind of a short quick little episode here. But yeah, that's basically the episode there. I just kind of wanted to give a little bit of a pedestal to Andy Warhol because he is such an inspirational artist. He was one, one of the big inspirational artists back then in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah, his artwork is so iconic. So thank you for listening. I hope that you learned something today that you hadn't learned about before. I hope you guys have a great day and a great week, and I will see you guys next week on another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye, guys.